listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. Yeah, so Rachel and I are back from uh, Prague. We uh, landed on Friday, so we're still getting over jet lag. This is a good time for us, though. It's six hours ahead there, so this is the afternoon for us, so I'm still feeling okay and feeling good. And uh, we're thankful for your prayers for us. We had the opportunity to do a retreat for a lot of the ministry leader friends that we had been working with for the last nine and a half years before moving back here to the States. So thank you for your prayers and for us and for that time, and it's, it's very good to be here. If you're new with us this morning, uh, thank you for coming during the summer as you adjust maybe to uh, finding a new place. Our pastor Mark has been on sabbatical for the summer and will be so for a couple more weeks and then he'll be back here so I get the honor and opportunity to be able to share from God's word this morning with you. And so if you have noticed, you might have guessed that we're in Psalm 40 this, this morning. We're, we've been doing a summer in the Psalms. There's a sheet uh, somewhere close to you, if you did not get one, there's probably one you can uh, take from somewhere close. And appreciate Justin helping us out this morning, passing them all out for us on the chairs, so we appreciate that. So we're going to be looking at Psalm 40, and I'm going to take a moment just to read through the entire passage. Psalm 40 is one of my favorite psalms, so when they said, we're doing summer in the Psalms, which one would you like to take? I immediately jumped on Psalm 40, and it's one of my favorites for a few reasons. One is because I love the band U2, and they have a song uh, they put this song to music, so maybe you can sing along in your head as we read through a little bit uh, if you're a U2 fan as well. But there's other reasons why it's my favorite that I'll get into uh, later, not just because of the band uh, U2, all right? So we're going to um, read through this. I'm just going to read through the entire thing. I'll read through it somewhat slowly. You can use your own Bible or the sheet that's in front of you if you have a pen. I would like to ask you as we read through it just to take a moment, see what words might stand out to you. What words or a phrase might catch your attention in a special way this morning? Maybe it feels like the Holy Spirit's tapping you on the shoulder saying, pay attention to this word or this phrase as we read through. And we'll, we'll look at those together in a little bit as well. So we'll start off Psalm 40. I'll read through the, the whole thing here. It says this, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog. And set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards me. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, Yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the, great, I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. 
For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha! Aha! But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is our Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. I love this psalm. I love it for so many reasons, but I'm curious about you. What stood out to you? Maybe if you could just take 30 seconds or a minute just to go back through what we just read and maybe circle or make a note of the word or phrase that stood out to you. Or maybe this morning your mind wondered as we just read through that. Whatever word or phrase, can you just hold that before the Lord this morning and ask him to be with you in that? Or if your mind wandered as we went through that, you already started thinking about things that need to happen today, that's okay. Would you be willing to hold that thought before the Lord as well this morning, just to bring that before him and ask him to meet you where you are this morning? So I'll just give you about 30 seconds. Just what word or phrase stood out to you? You can make a note of that, and then we'll gather some of those in just a moment. All right? Everybody understand what we're doing right now? Just take a look back through that. What word or phrase stood out to you? Anyone willing to share what word or phrase stood out? Verse 1, yeah, what word, yeah, or phrase there? I waited patiently, yeah. One version or translation says, I waited and waited and waited. <laughs> yeah, someone else had one. You multiplied your wondrous deeds and thoughts towards us. Multiplied his thoughts towards us. What an incredible word. There's another one. If you have one, Luke. The loss, yeah, thoughts towards us and the thoughts for us. I am needy. Yeah. Anybody can relate? Very powerful. It's written in your scroll about me, in your book. Right? I delight to do, do your will. Good. Lance, you're in the light right there, so it just sounded like a voice from heaven. I was like, well, I can't even see you. Yeah. <laughs> yes, Lord. Good. Anyone else? A couple more. So good. And here we are in the congregation, we get to share, right? We get to come together. One of the purposes of coming together is to be able to share what is God doing in our own hearts. So good. One more. 
You will not restrain your mercy for me. Yeah. All right, I said one more. We got another one in the back, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You will not, you are not withhold your mercy. Your steadfast love will sustain us. So good. Yeah, thanks for being willing to share. I think for me, so you hit on so many of the themes that we'll hit on this morning as, as you're doing that. I think for me, one of the things why I like this is in the beginning, verse 1, he says, I waited, I waited patiently for the Lord. And then you get to verse 13, it says, be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste and help me. He starts off with this, I waited. And by the time he gets to the end, he's saying, Lord, come quickly. Lord, help. I believe Help my unbelief. And I think that's where I live so often is in that place between those two things. Some moments I'm like, I've got this, I'm doing good. Other moments, I don't got this, I'm not doing good. Anybody else relate? Sometimes I'm like, I can teach this. And other times I'm like, you know, I can't teach this. What did I say? Sometimes I'll wake up at 2.30 in the morning and I start to worry about different things. And I'll think, what did I tell everybody else the other day when I was teaching this, right? Sometimes like, oh yeah, I got this. Other times I'm like, oh, no, I don't got this. Can I just say as we go through this, I'm way over my head. All right, I'm going to say a lot of things that I struggle myself with. I'm way over my head. I haven't arrived. I need this as well as we go through this. Thank you so much for willing, be willing to share, your willingness to share uh, as we were going through it and what stood out to you. I, I hope we're going to hit on a lot of those different places together as well. All right, so let's dive in. We're going to start with verse 1. Uh, we're going to take some time in the first three verses, and then we'll, we'll kind of speed through some parts of it as well. So verse 1, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. So obviously David is in trouble here, right? And what's his posture when he's in this pit? It's, it's humble, it's waiting. He cries out to God. And then we notice God's posture. What does God do? What's his posture in this? Yeah, he inclines, he bends down, he rescues. He listens, he hears. It's kind of like, you ever, you know, when you're trying to listen to a child, this happened earlier today, I'm trying to understand what they were saying, and I had to go down, I had to get to their level, to their face to be able to understand, because I can't always hear well, and so I had to lean way down. God doesn't have that problem, he hears, but he gets down, he listens, he moves. I'm reminded of when Hagar, in the uh, Old Testament, she was uh, the servant of Sarai and Abram at the time, and uh, God had given them a promise that they're going to have a kid, and Hagar was uh, in distress, uh, their servant. She goes out to the wilderness, and she's there. She's running away. She's going uh, to just die, probably. Uh, she's trying to escape them, the harsh conditions she was living under. And God moves towards her, and she says, Anybody remember what she names God in that moment? God, you are a God who, yeah, she says, you're a God who sees. And then God gives her a name that she's going to name. He tells her she's going to have a son, and she gives her a name for her son, and his name is going to be Ishmael, which means God hears. God hears. He listens. Incredible. I, I was thinking about this earlier. I was kind of going back through my notes and I think, all right, if you're one of these like, kind of Bible geeks and you start to research, don't research right now because I don't know if I'm right when I say this. All right? It just occurred to me earlier, I haven't researched this, I haven't looked it up, so I'm just watching. No one go to Google right now. 
to figure out if what I'm about to say, Luke, you can just affirm or uh, deny if you can for me. All right. I think this is the first time that God says a name for himself. So he, he has shown up, he's given promises, he's made covenants, but I think this might be the first time that God actually names himself to someone. He names himself as the God who hears. And I think it's the first time that someone has actually given God a name when she says you are God who sees. Isn't that powerful? So he shows up to uh, Hagar in the wilderness there. God is, his posture toward David is he moves, he hears. We have a God who hears. And David doesn't mention what type of pit that he's in, what this pit of destruction is. It's obviously dangerous for him. When you read the story of his life, if you're reading through the Old Testament right now as your Bible reading plan for the year, if you're trying to do the read through the Bible in a year time, uh, if you've read about the life of David, there's a lot of things that are happening in David's life and his story. There are life-threatening moments over and over again. He's running for his life. The uh, miry bog that he's in, it could have been something maybe physical for him. Maybe it was his own sin. He'll definitely talk about that later when he gets into these places where his sins surround him. It could have been choices that he met, made that led to disastrous consequences. It could have been an emotional relationship or hardships. Or it could have been something physical, maybe a physical pain that he was dealing with. We don't know exactly what it is, but we know we can relate. One thing I know about me, when I'm in this kind of situation where I'm in a pit, I get tunnel vision. All I can see is the darkness. All I can see is the wall. All I can see is the mud and the mire. All I want is out. I don't care what it takes to get me out. The last thing I would say about what's going on in me is that I'm patient. I get locked in on the problem or on the anxiety that I'm in. Anyone else can relate? You don't have to raise your hand. Just point to someone that you know is like that. At least I'll know that. All right? Maybe not. All right. I become very black and white in those moments. I just want out of that situation. I go rigid. Someone says something small, and I don't have the capacity to hold it. And someone says something small to me, and then I make something big out of it. Rachel says, hey, I know we talked about going out to eat, but maybe we could just stay in tonight. I'm like, you've never loved me. You know, like, I make a huge jump, right? (laughs) Because there's no capacity to hold anything else. I'm not patient. David says that God drew him out. He put him in a place with secure footing. This was the work of God. David starts by using the I word. I was in this place, but he quickly switches to all that God is doing. So when I find myself in those places where I get this tunnel vision and at the walls, all I can see is the darkness and all I can feel is the anxiety of where I am, what is my posture in that moment to look up, to look towards God? My role is to wait, but I'm not just waiting for anything or anyone. I'm waiting for God. What is he going to do? Can I be curious of how he's going to work, how he's going to move? Romans 8 tells us that we can hope with a hope knowing that God is working even now, that he is rescuing, he is redeeming, and he will restore. That God is always at work to rescue, to redeem, to restore. Romans 8 tells us we are loved and nothing can separate us from his love. It says that all creation groans, all creation is growing, waiting for the day when his glory will be fully revealed, but we can wait with hope. So when I'm in a pit, it's very hard for me to hope. Instead of having patient humility, I tend to move towards entitled demands. When I find myself in this place where I am in a pit and all I want is out, I find my heart moving towards entitled demands. I become bitter or I become cynical. All temptations, if you're reading through the Psalms, all temptations that David seems to face as well. So hope believes 
in the cross. No matter what my worry is, I know that, that through the cross that he is redeeming all things. No matter what my worry is through the resurrection, I can look at the resurrection and know that he is restoring all things, that he chooses, that he loves to rescue. That his, resurre- that his resurrection means that whatever happens, he will restore everything in a way that reveals his loving kindness. Did you hear that? That no matter what circumstance I find myself in, that I can look at the cross and I can look at the resurrection and know that in his Good timing, and one day he will reveal his character and he will reveal his uh, love for us that reveals his kindness. So what if it goes bad? What if I'm in a pit and just it, I don't seem to get out? What if it seems to be bad? I can know that he'll redeem it. I join the Spirit in all of creation in waiting and hope. It's my role to be patient, to be in humility, to have hope, and to wait. It's God's role well, let's just look at that. What is God's role? Take a look at verses 1 through 3. Just mention some of the things. What is God's role? What is God doing? He, what? Draws us up. Yeah. What else? He makes our steps secure. Yes. What else? Say it one more time. He protects. Okay, yeah. Right, he puts a new song in our mouth, which is exactly where we're going next in this. Yeah, great job. He is the one that leans down. He's the one that hears. He's the one that draws out. He's the one that makes my steps secure. He's the one that protects, right? In verse 3, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. So we notice the direction of our worship, right? It's toward God. Worship realigns our hearts. We are recalibrated to the worth of who he is, to the worth of his greatness, when we sing together in the congregation like this, what we're doing is realigning our hearts to his goodness, his greatness, to his worth. We realign ourselves to who he is. He is the one that rescues. He is the one that draws us up. It was in verse 2, in order to get out of the pit, we need something from above us to bring us up. The leverage always has to come from above us. There are no self-made Christians. There are no self-made Christians. There are no self-made followers of Jesus. You cannot put your hands under your feet and lift yourself up off the ground. This has to be a work of God. And then what's the result of our worship? What does it say? If he puts a new song in our heart, what's the result of our worship? What happens? What's that? Yeah, others will also put their trust in the Lord. One of the greatest things we do as we worship is we realign our trust to God, but it also becomes contagious. It allows other people to begin to put their trust in the Lord as well. Not just their trust, but they will see and fear. In other words, they will recalibrate to the reality of God's worth, to the reality of his weight and his glory. So as we worship, as we wait in humility and allow him to do his work and we're curious, one of the things that begins to happen is we are able to worship it's interesting because in verse, um, as we look at this in verse 9, David is going to speak. In other words, he's going to tell us the congregation about the glad news of God's deliverance. And there's definitely a, there's a place to speak. There's a place to talk in this. But it begins with worship. Are we with me on this? There's a place to talk. There's a place to give speeches. There's a place to even, I think, to give advice. But where David starts is with worship. Before David teaches, before he gives advice or preaches a sermon or tells the truth, before he comes up with a, a list of four ways to get out of the pit like he did, he worships. 
I was talking with someone recently, and they were struggling with someone else. And they were telling me about the struggle they had with someone else, and they didn't think they were living by the truth in some ways, and so they were going to tell them the truth, and they were going to tell them how they thought they should be living. And they were going through this, and uh, as they were talking to them, I thought, I really hope they don't ask me what I think. <laughs> I really hope they don't ask me for advice, because they were getting pretty worked up. They were pretty frustrated about how this other person, uh, their choices, some of the things that they were doing. And so I was waiting patiently for the Lord as they were talking and then they said, what do you think I should tell them? What do you think I should do? And at that point, I stopped being patient. I was patient right up to that point. And I thought, oh, I don't know what to do in this moment. I want to be able to invite them to something different, but I could feel that my own patience, my own contempt would start to, to come out. And I had to repent. I had to go to the Lord with this. I thought before I share something, I wonder what it would look like for me to worship. Because the person I was talking to was talking about fear and trust, but they weren't coming at it from a place where there was a new song in their heart. They got, this, they got the fear part down in this, but they also had a lot of willpower thrown in. And it seemed to be missing the humility that it was the Lord that draws us out. It's him that, that puts a new song in us. Contempt is often contagious. Shame is often contagious. I appreciate, Luke, you praying about that this morning as you talk. What is it the shame that we bring to this time that we can lay before the Lord. What was it that they were going through as they began to share with their friend? I noticed that there was no awe or wonder or worship. There was no song. Are you following me here? Oftentimes when we move to tell someone that we want to say, hey, you need to fear the Lord, you need to trust, you need to do this, you need to do this. Those things could be very true. But is it coming from a place of actual worship? Is it coming from a place of actual uh, wonder and awe of what God is doing? They were not fueled to speak by worship. They were fueled by frustration and anger and disappointment in someone else. So I prayed as this person was sharing. They wanted some advice. They wanted to know what they should say. And as I prayed in my own heart, as I felt the contempt and had to turn that over to the Lord for myself, to move back to a place, can I, can I be curious? Can I be, have wonder? Can I have awe about maybe what God is up to in this other person's life? And so I begin to ask, where do you see God at work in them? Where do you see God at work? I'm wondering what song God might be putting in our hearts that stirs us to worship him more than being frustrated by someone else not doing something right. Are you with me? What song has he put in your heart that moves you towards awe and wonder about what God might be doing in someone else's heart more than being frustrated or angry by them not doing something right? What song has he put in us? In other words, the song that we have that is in us is that he is doing something in our own hearts. We have been people that were in the pit. Maybe you're in the pit now, and we can be curious. What is God doing in my heart? He longs to rescue. He longs to redeem. He longs to restore. And I begin to think sometimes as I'm talking with people, when did I lose the awe and wonder about what God could be doing, about the song that moves us to worship him, how did I lose that and become more filled with frustration towards someone else in that moment? One more thought about the song that God puts in our mouth. It comes from a place where we are all in need of rescue. The song that he puts in our mouth in this moment that he's talking about, it's a song of rescue. It comes from the pit. In other words, it's a song that will, uh, it comes from my own scars. It comes from a place where I needed to be rescued. So we all have scars in our lives because we've all been in a pit. We all have stories to tell. 
There's something about God that I could not have known. It's a song that he's going to let me know about himself, about God, that I could not have known without the pit. And maybe I'm working with someone or I'm talking with someone or you're in friendship with someone and they begin to tell a story from their own life and realize, can we be curious about the awe, have awe and wonder about what God is doing in someone else? We all have stories to tell. We all have a verse to contribute to the song. And here's the thing, your scars, your story, it's not just yours. It belongs to all of us. Do you notice this? The song that we get from being in the pit is not just your song. It's a song that goes out to other people. It's a song to be sung so others will know God in a different way. We all, all have stories of broken relationships, of choices that we have made that have hurt others or ways that we've been hurt. We all have stories of sickness. We all have stories of panic. I know I do. We all have stories that where our hope and faith was stretched, that we still hold before God, that we still hold before the cross, before his blood, that we hold at the tomb. We say, here I am. God, what are you doing? And we can always know that he delights to, re- to rescue, to redeem, and to restore. So here's my question for you as we go into this. What song has God put in your mouth? The House of the Rising Sun. It's a good song, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What song has God put in your heart? What song has God put in your mouth? A song of, what song has he put in you? A song of praise that invites us, invites us to trust God. I'm going to give you just a moment. Think about it, okay? What's the song of rescue that he's given you? What's the song of redemption that he's put in your mouth? I'm going to give you just five, ten seconds. Just think for just a moment. You can maybe write down, what's the song that he's put in you? Or maybe you don't know yet. What song would you long for him to give you? What song would you long for him to put in your heart? All right, I'm going to give you ten seconds. All right. Think that through. What song has he put in you? You're not going to answer it, so this is just between you and God. We've all come from the pit. We all have a song. What's your song? There is something I know because of God, because of this pit, something I could not know otherwise. We said it before. But there's also something that I can know about God because of your song as well. That's why I want to hear it. That's why we have to come together. Don't hide that part of your life and that part of your story, where those scars are. That's why I love our DNA groups and why I love our life groups, because it's a space where we can share in humility and honesty, the song that God is at work in our lives. This is why Paul tells us when you come together to sing psalms, to sing songs together. So what about your life, your scars, your story is meant to reveal something about God. And then in verse 4, it says this, Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. One thing about the proud one thing about the proud is they only have themselves to offer. It's never something other than themselves. The proud, me, in my pride, I say I can do it myself. And I ask God to give me resources that will give me what I want. I mean, if God wants to resource me, that's fine, but I want it on my terms, and I often call that prayer, right? Where are the resources that I feel like I need to make my life work? In my pride, I have a tenacious commitment to manage my life without ever having to really trust God. Anyone else? In my pride, I have a tenacious commitment to manage my life without ever having to really trust God. Namely, to never be in a place where I'm humiliated, 
to be in a place where I always stay comfortable by whatever resources seem available to me that will work or keep me out of the pits. Why? Because if I'm honest, it doesn't seem like God will come through for me in the ways that I think I need him to. Often when I'm in a place where I'm in a pit, and I get into that place where that's all I can see, there's something in my heart, there's a fist in me towards God that says, God, I really cannot trust you to get me out of this the way that I want you to. That's the place where I have to bring to him. If I'm honest, it seems like he's not going to come through for me the way I need. I have to turn to something else. I have to turn to the proud. It seems like the proud have got it working in ways that I don't. Could I rely on them to maybe get me out of this? I know that God rescues. I know that God rescues, but it doesn't seem like he's moving right now, that he's really hearing. And I, maybe sometimes I get in these places where I feel overwhelmed. I'm not sure how I'm going to manage my way out of this. It seems like the proud have better solutions that don't involve death and resurrection. What does it like, look like for me to trust his death, his resurrection, to trust the cross? I heard one person say it this way, worry keeps your heart from the deepest level of imagination and how God can work. All right, listen to this carefully. Worry denies the resurrection and the cross. Worry is treasonous to the gospel. Worry is treasonous to the gospel because it doesn't believe that the gospel can actually redeem or restore. So here's a couple ways that I... Uh, signs that I know that I'm going to the proud. How, do you, how can you tell that when you're moving to the proud or moving or trusting in a lie? I mean, if you knew it was a lie, you wouldn't believe it, right? Like, probably. <laughs> if you knew it was a lie. So sometimes we believe these lies without knowing that we actually believe them. Here are some ways that I know that I'm moving towards the, some signs for me that I know I'm moving towards, the, towards the, uh, moving towards the proud. One is I start to go into image control. I start to inflate myself to others. I start to spin to the positive. And when I tell stories, I make myself look good and others look not as good. Anyone else do that? <laughs> Again, no pointing at this point in time. <laughs> this is for you. All right. I was in a conversation just a couple of weeks ago between two people that had some significance in their uh, role and in their jobs, and they were talking about some of the things that were going on in their lives in a way that made me feel small and not significant and kind of invisible they were kind of movers and shakers in the world that we were living in. And I felt, uh, I felt kind of out of place. These guys were significant. And finally, I had a chance to kind of speak up. It was kind of my turn to maybe say something. So I told a funny story. <laughs> Trying to win them over. Yeah, not that well. <laughs> Thanks, Richard. <laughs> I embellished some of the facts with some artistic license, I told a story that I thought would make me look significant too. And when I walked away later, I thought, man, that story was way too long. <laughs> I shouldn't have said anything. I should have chosen a different table to sit at. I shouldn't even have sat where they were sitting. I bet they wished that I would have sat at a different table too. <laughs> and then I made a vow. Next time I'm in that situation, I'm not going to say anything that makes me look stupid. I'll just keep quiet next time. Anyone else do this? <laughs> All right. I'm not the only one, right? Yeah, thank you, Rachel. Yeah, I see that hand. Any other hands? Hands over here. All right. So I was going astray. I was going to the prowl. I was going to independent, self-managed, self-protective, self-promoting strategies. I was going to prowl strategies. And then later, I started to compare myself to others in a way that makes me feel cynical or bitter, but not worshipful. Comparison kills every time. 
Anytime we're in a situation and we find ourselves comparing ourselves to someone else, it's interesting because when we start to compare, especially as believers, out loud to someone else, it's always with contempt, right? It's never comparing ourselves to the cross. It's always comparing ourselves to someone else. In that moment, if someone would have been listening to our conversation who desperately needed the gospel, there would not have been anything from me that would have pointed them towards worship. There was no song in my conversation. Do you hear me? When we get into this place where we start to compare and complain and move towards contempt and judgment, and I thought if someone would have later, I was kind of processing that. Anybody do that? Like I'm processing every word that I said and every word they said and all this stuff. And I thought if someone who desperately needed the gospel would have been listening to that conversation, there would have been nothing in that that would have pointed them towards worship. It would have been towards more complaining or control or contempt. That's one of the things I do. I move towards self-managed, self-protective, self-promoting strategies. The other thing I do when I move towards the proud, another sign for me is I start to look for resources for shalom with a commitment to stay in control. I start looking for resources for shalom with a commitment for me to be able to stay in control. One author said, there is a certain amount of peace that comes with being in control, but it's never a life-giving peace. In this state, I start to demand that others cooperate with my vision of shalom, whatever my vision is for it is. I demand that others make decisions and choices around me that work for me with little curiosity or awe for how God might be working in their lives. I lose my vision for them knowing God, and I have no greater vision for them than that they start treating me like I'm the one that matters most. These are all ways that I move towards the proud ways and believe lies. I wonder what damage, I wonder what damage to my relationship, in my relationship, what damage that I might do when my commitment is to stay out of the pit more than anything else, when I lose humility. What about you? What alliances have you made with the proud? Where do you turn when you're worried about being in the pit? What alliances have you made to assure your own self-preservations? Just a couple more of ways that I make alliances with the proud. Earlier uh, last week or so, I was talking to this clerk, and the clerk told me that it was going to take a little bit longer than I was expecting it was going to take, and just you know, asked if I could wait for a while. I could have responded with kindness. I could have responded that they seemed overworked and stressed and seemed shorthanded, and that must be really hard for them. I could have worshipped and allowed my heart to be moved by humility. Instead, I made an alliance with the proud, and I mumbled under my breath, but loud enough for them to hear that I had places to be, and they were holding me up. I met with a friend for breakfast recently, a friend who got a new job. He's going to be working for someone else that I know, actually, someone that I feel very intimidated by often. I could have congratulated them. I could have worshipped with them. I could have celebrated with them. Instead, I made an alliance with pride that put their new boss down and made me look good. I said that I didn't think that their new boss was a full-blown narcissist, but he definitely had those tendencies, so they probably should watch out. When another friend called with a difficult choice and wondered what I might think, I could have been gracious, but also very honest 
with my opinion with them, but I made an alliance with pride and I chose a route of people-pleasing to protect myself of their bad opinion of me. And I didn't say anything. In each of these cases, I didn't trust God. I believed a lie. I believed that saying something with contempt would be better than kindness. I believed that putting someone down and making me look wise would be better than offering life. And I believed that trying to please would keep my relationship safer than allowing God to protect me. And these are just the ones I'm willing to share with you, right? Anyone else do any of these? Do I really believe, as David says, that I'm, not, I'm more blessed by trusting God than my own self ways of promoting myself and protecting myself in ways of relating? What alliances do you make with pride? Most of the alliances that we make with pride move us away from connecting. They move us towards complaining, contempt, or control, or comparing. But praise God, verse 5, <laughs> right? But praise God, we have a Savior who delights to rescue who delights to restore. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. And sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear, burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. In verse 8, David says that David's law is written within his heart. It's the same language that Jeremiah and Ezekiel both will use to talk about the new covenant that comes with Jesus' death and resurrection, right? that we need a new heart. We're not going to be able to tweak our way out of the sin that we're in. We're not going to be able to willpower our way out. We need something to change in us, something beyond duty or rules. I need a new heart. There is something in me that longs now with a new heart to put God's character on display. There is something in me that believes that trusting God's wondrous deeds are truly the blessing that I desire. And when that happens, what do I do? do? Verse 9, I told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips as you know, O Lord. Verse 10, I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and of your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness to the congregation. So catch this. Humility, when we're in the pit, that patient waiting, humility leads to worship, which leads to movement towards others, to bless them by inviting them to where life is found. Something alive in me desires to see others know God. Something alive in me desires that others also know God. That they, I want others to know God's heart for them. I want them to know his steadfast love, his faithfulness, his delight to redeem and to rescue and to restore. We can't keep it to ourselves. In this place of humility, where we're moved to worship, we're always moved towards others. Worship always moves us towards others. It always moves us to say, you've got to see this. We do this at sporting events or all these different things when we something we love. You find a song that you like. You've got to check out this new band. Ever do that? Or you've got to look at this. You've got to see this new movie. Did you see that play? Did you hear that song? There's something in me that desires to that he does his will through me as well, through this new heart that he gives us. In other words, when we experience his steadfast love and his mercy, there is something in me that wants others to experience his love through me. I long to represent him to others. And I become a representation of his steadfast love that says, this is worth living for. The opposite is also true, though. When I'm not moved in humility and I'm not moved towards worship and awe, then what happens is without the humble heart, that is rescued without the worship. I'm only left with duty, obedience, through willpower that demands sacrifice 
and judging and comparing. That's all I have to offer. I have rules and duty. When I don't have humility or worship, I'm left with rules and duty. There's no life. But when I see a steadfast love, then I can come to him and I can cry out, have mercy. Without that, I'm only left with promises to do better next time. But David realized that that's not where his hope is. His hope is not in being a little better next time. That's not going to work for him. Does that make sense? David's hope is not in being able to do better next time. David realizes that that's not where his hope is. His hope is not in being better. He's in over his head. His sins are too many for him to tweak his way out of. Verse 11. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. Thank God. Right? And all these different places that I find myself. You, O Lord, will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. Verse 12, for evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me. I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. So what's the, what's the answer when I find myself in this place where I see that I have turned my way towards pride? What is this answer when I find myself in the pit? It's to be able to cry out to him. Verse 13, be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. My only hope is to cry out to God, oh, Lord, have mercy. And here's the beautiful thing. When I find myself in these places where I have turned to pride, when I find myself in these places where uh, I'm in the pit, my hope is that I can cry out to God and say, oh, Lord, have mercy. That's my only hope, to be able to say, oh, Lord, have mercy. And what's his answer? His answer is, you've got it. My hope is to cry out and say, I'm really sorry, I'll try harder next time. It's to turn to him and say, oh, Lord, have mercy. And his answer is, you've got it. Verse 14, let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who see to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight my hurt. So who does God trust to protect him from those who want to do him harm? Who's he going to trust to protect him? Nikki said it earlier, he protects, right? Who? It's Sunday school. I mean, it's church. You can answer it's. It's God, right. All right. It's God. In other words, David doesn't have to plot their revenge. <laughs> he doesn't have to find ways to punish them or get back at them. He can trust God with them. He doesn't have to get back at them and do things like the silent treatment. He doesn't have to use sighs or shakes of the head or face palms <laughs> to plot his revenge, to get back at them, to make them feel his contempt. He can trust them to God. Verse 15, let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, aha, aha. Exclamation point. (laughs) Knowing anyone that has just kind of like, they're always out to get you. They're always trying to catch. They always see the bad. They always see the the negative. You ever live like that? I know I do sometimes. Aha type people are telling a different story than God is telling they're telling a different story than worship. They're not telling a, uh, a life-giving story. They're not telling a story about, his, about the cross and his death and his resurrec- resurrection. They want to catch you. Aha, gotcha. Aha, people have files and records of other faults, but never their virtues, never ways that God might be working. Aha, people don't see God working, and they don't see what God sees. Can I just say this? God is not an aha, aha type. 
He's not talking about God here. Some of us have a theology that God's kind of an aha God, waiting to catch us, waiting to see the wrong. That yeah, he loves us, but man, he really wants you to get better. <laughs> aha, he's going to catch us. We don't have to live a life waiting for those blue lights in the rearview mirror, right? No offense to the police officers in the room, right? <laughs> I was driving out of our neighborhood uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I was coming to our light. I was turning left. The light was green, and I noticed that the light over here was, uh, was a, a cop. And so then I was watching in my rearview mirror, and the light turned green, so now the, he's coming up behind me at some point in time. And there's this thing in me. It's like, it's, it's going to be an aha. You know, I'm doing everything I can like, to be obviously within the law. I want to I be within the law. But I thought, I'm just going to pull over and let him go because I don't know if I'm going to be able to do it or not, right? <laughs> I'm just going to pull into the next parking lot, let him pass me, and then I'll be okay. And we kind of feel like God is that way sometimes. He's just watching, waiting, 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 waiting. Aha, I got you. The voice of aha is very loud in my mind sometimes. Anyone else there? Waiting for that to happen. Aha, you don't matter. Aha, you messed up and you're going to be humiliated. Aha, you're not doing enough. Aha, people won't think you're significant. Aha, you better do better. Aha brings shame, not life. And God is not in the aha crowd. Is that hard for you to hear? You might grow up in a tradition like I did where God was an aha God. He's not. 16, but all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. Those who seek God, they rejoice. It's the opposite of aha. Those who love God's rescuing salvation, they love and they worship and they can't help breaking out in a song saying God is great. Great is the Lord. Those who seek God don't have time for ahas. The proud see someone in a pit and they wonder, I wonder what they did wrong. I wonder how they got there. They should have known better. They should have been careful. The aha crowd they condemn. Most of us would love for this chapter to end right here, right? Where we see God's uh, goodness. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. It sounds great. Most of us would love for the chapter to end here, but it doesn't. Verse 17, and this is where I find myself so often. As for me, all these great things about God, and here I am again. I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. I've got this. I don't got this. But he delights to rescue. He delights to redeem. He delights to restore. We're going to take communion in just a moment. But before we do, in Hebrews chapter 10, the author of Hebrews is going to point back to some of these verses in Psalm 40, and he's going to say that Jesus fulfills these places. I think one of the things that when I listen to a lot of what I've been talking about this morning as I look at this and look at my own life, one of the things that I do is like, oh, okay, this week I'm going to complain less. I'm going to try to find my own way out of the pit. I'm going to try to lift my own way out. Instead of moving towards humility and awe and wonder and worship, instead of moving towards to see God's steadfast love, to put his heart on display through us, instead of looking to his mercy, I go to the way of the proud. For Hebrews invites us to see Jesus as our sacrifice. The author of Hebrews, he references verses 6 through 8, and he says that Jesus fulfilled all the sacrifices that we could not do. 
It's good news. Jesus fulfills all the sacrifices that we could not do. He cleanses us once for all. Jesus has fulfilled what we could not do, and we could not make ourselves better by trying harder. We are over our heads in that compartment. And Jesus completely comes and fulfills God's will for us. And here's the beautiful thing in Hebrews chapter 10. It says this. Jesus says, I will remember their sins no more. That great news. As we come to communion, we can celebrate that there are no more ahas. We are forgiven fully because of what Christ has done for us. So if you find yourself this morning in a pit, and that's all you can see, or maybe you found yourself in the descriptions, like I find myself often, in the place of the proud, can I invite us to cry out, oh Lord, have mercy? And that's what this, uh, the bread that we'll take, his body broken for us, the juice that we'll take, representing his blood for us, that we get to celebrate that his sacrifice for us means no more ahas. Our sins are fully forgiven. That his steadfast love is towards us and for us. And if you've never placed your trust in Jesus for what he's done for us, I want to encourage you this morning, I would invite you to put your trust in him to look up, to see the cross, to see his resurrection, to see him sitting at the right hand of the Father. If that's new to you, that thought, what I just said, I would love to talk to you afterwards. There's other people that would love to be able to talk to you. You can seek one of us out to talk about what is this? What does it mean to put our trust in Christ? For those who are believers, this table's for you. If you put your trust in him, can you maybe this morning bring whatever you are, whether it's in the pit or maybe you're finding yourself in a, in a place where, the, um, where you can relate to some of those moments that I had this past week where I've been proud and turned to those lies. Can you hold those before the Lord this morning? Let me pray for us and we'll uh, feel free to come and take. Father, thank you for your goodness for us. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your steadfast love. Thank you that you remember our sins no more. Father, I pray for this time as we come and take this bread and dip it in the juice and remember what you've done for us. I pray that we'll have hearts with a new song that are filled with worship that longs to put your character and your heart on display with others. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen.